Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Tinker Talks. Tinker Talks is your audio format podcast that talks about happenings and events that happen behind the fence line of Tinker Air Force Base. I'm your host, Mark Hybers, and today we have a very special guest. And actually, uh, we have two guests today, but the first time uh, we've ever had a guest on that's actually not a part of our of our Tinker Air Force Base team. So um, we're going to get into that in just a second with our guest, Dr. Charleston Gaines. Uh, and Captain Gabriel Malasig. Yes, sir. I said that right, sir? Good. It's a, it's a tough one. If I get it wrong, <laughs> just correct me right here on, on the podcast. It's okay. Um, and so what we're going to be talking about um, is, is April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month. And that is recognized by both civilians and the military communities. Uh, and, of course, the Department of Defense is, is very big on, on promoting this and, and prevention methods. Uh, and the Department of Defense observes SAPM by focusing on creating the appropriate culture to eliminate sexual assault and requiring a personal commitment from all service members, which is also included in the, the civilian sector. Mm-hmm. Um, the theme for this year is Step Forward, Prevent, Report, and Advocate. This theme is a call to action for individuals at all levels to use their personal strength and advance positive change in preventing sexual violence. And that's actually why Dr. Gaines is here, because Tinker and the team here, um, the Sapper team, stepped forward in bringing you in because you have expertise on sexual assault prevention. Um, and we're going to get into that just in just a few minutes, but also focusing on leadership and resiliency, which is part of creating that positive environment. And one of the sessions that you did today, Dr. Gaines, was about um, the, the right to be happy frankly. Um, so a little bit of background is Dr. Gaines is a health psychologist, a corporate and emotional intelligence trainer, international speaker, and esteemed mental uh, mental health. Is that no, right? Master. Oh, where do you say mental health? Esteemed educator? mental health. Yeah, like a instructor. Yes. Or, okay. Um, and you also have a long history of work with the DOD. You're actually a retired Air Force disabled veteran, a DOD certified master resilience trainer, and was even an author and instructor for the Sexual Assault Response Coordinator courses for the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy. I think that's kind of cool. That's, that's absolutely your rally, sir. He literally uh, wrote the book on how I was trained. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome. So, sir, welcome, and thank you for joining us on this podcast uh, today. Thank you. I'm grateful. I'm glad to be here. Um, we're not going to take up too much of your time, as we were discussing before we hit record. You've had three sessions today and spoke to full houses in all three, uh, and so you're probably a bit worn out. <laughs> I'm surprised you still have a voice, frankly. Um, so but before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly did you do when you were in the Air Force? When I was in the Air Force, I was um, an intelligence analyst. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I'll tell you this, my first base, we were creating, oh, I'm about to date myself, <laughs> we were creating these cartridges with images on it to send forward to Bosnia um, during the Yugoslav Wars, the Balkan Wars mm-hmm. of the early to mid-90s. And then I went to Aviano, Italy, and I was supporting that. Mm-hmm. And I come full circle, maybe 10, 15 years later, I was back in Italy. And I was there during Operations Odyssey Dawn Unified Protector. And by this point in time, as an intel analyst, I was tired of being a part of the kill chain. Hmm. 
I was tired of my inputs being required before we could drop bombs on target. We had certain operations where certain high-value targets were taken out, and those high-value targets go by other names such as dad, brother, father, mm -hmm. husband, cousin. And I just I didn't want to be part of it anymore. Um, and so I decided I wanted to go from being a part of the kill chain to actually helping people live and thrive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by this time, I had already, I was already you know, steeped in psychology anyway. Right. Um, so I've been studying it for a while. And then I went back to Colorado for my very last assignment, and I was a sexual assault victim advocate for four years. I'll tell you this. I was a victim advocate before they came up with this thing called um, DSEC-P certification. Okay. Yeah, they, I, was, I was doing victim advocacy before that. Um, and that's, um, that's your national certification through, the, through NOVA, which is the National Organization of Victim Assistance. Right. So they certify our victim advocates. And so I was part of one of the first people to get that certification. So was there something in your background growing up that, that got you interested in that? Or was it just the psychology you were interested in? It was, you know, well, first of all, I'll say this. We have all been impacted by sexual assault. If you don't know of anyone in your life ever who's been sexually assaulted, it's because they decided not to share with you. Mm -hmm. yeah, but you cannot have female friends, girlfriends, women supervisors, a mom, a grandmother, sisters, female cousins. You cannot have all of those in your life and not know anyone who's been sexually assaulted. And for me, what started for me was, I mentioned this earlier today was, when I was in high school, I found out that this, my girlfriend at the time, was being molested by her father. Wow. So that was my first introduction to it. And I didn't know then what I know now about sexual assault. Um, but it continued throughout my career. And I can tell you lots of stories about it. Um, when, I was in, when I was at Cannon Air Force Base, I had a young male troop who was, who was raped, um, drug-facilitated sexual assaults. Um, when I was at Shriver Air Force Base, there was a young reservist, young woman. Her husband was a civilian. She was a full-time reservist, and she decided to go off orders. And everybody said, why are you doing that? You're the sole breadwinner. Come to find out, um, her supervisor, who was a master sergeant, would drive from Colorado Springs to Denver every Wednesday. And he took her with her every Wednesday, made her wear her blue skirt so that he could fondle her legs and her body on the drive there and back every wow. Wednesday. So she would rather cut off that paycheck and figure it out and not be sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. um, she would rather try to survive. Um, and so, yeah, from the beginning of my career, high school to the end of my career, it's always been there. Wow. So, geez, that's tough. I mean, you're kind of meant to be doing what you do now, I think, <laughs> at some point. Um, was it an option for you to have gotten into this line of work instead of the intelligence field, or did maybe that just wasn't... I, I don't remember. I mean, you and I actually were... I was in the Adriatic Sea quite often during the early to mid-90s on a Navy ship yeah. during that Yugoslavian... during that, uh, that skirmish yeah. they had, and we did quite a bit of time up in, up in the Italy area. Um, but I don't, I don't remember if, if, like the Sark or yeah, if that so was around there, back there, then. Or there, there wasn't the mm -hmm. um, the Sapper program started in two thousand five. Mm -hmm. Okay, then that right. makes sense. And and yeah. so when I tell you about my troop that was my troop that was raped in the dorms, 
There was no separate program. There were no restrictive reports. There was no special victims council. Right. Um, there was an empathetic leader who made it very clear that if we were to talk about it, we could humiliate and embarrass him. So we need to not talk about it. We needed to shut down all rumors. He took mm -hmm. the lead on that. And that's an example that I followed where he was very concerned about people first. And he's a, he's a leader that I emulate. Right. <clears throat> yeah, you know, the even my position, the deputy sergeant here at Tinker, you know, that's that's limited to officers. Uh, it's a, it's a two-year uh, special duty assignment, um, but it is not a, a career field yet. Um, that was potentially one of the uh, recommendations from the uh, Congressional Independent Review Committee, but nothing has been uh, codified um, at this point. Right. Okay. And so, and we're, we're going to actually touch on on empathetic leadership here in just a little bit. But when you talk about um, reporting and, and pre prevalence, I think is is something sexual assault prevalence. I think right. you had talked about today. Uh, can you briefly touch on the differences between the numbers reported and prevalence? And why does this distinction matter so much when it comes to prevention efforts? And we're talking in, we're not talking specific military, we're just talking generalization. Well, my response to that question is, is more coming from a, an emotional intelligence perspective and a sense of understanding why. And so the number of reports obviously are going to be less than the number of incidents, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the number of hits is always less than the number of at-bats. It's just the way it happens. But what we want is for the number of reports to be closer to the number of incidents, and we want the number of incidents to come down. And so when we're talking about the number of reports aligning with the number of incidents, what we're really talking about is a culture where people believe some good comes from reporting. And so if you look at the percentage, we'll say, for example, 20% of incidents resulted in a report. And if that 20%, if there's a trend where it goes from 20 to 18 to 15 to 12, the percentage is going down, mm -hmm. why is that? <clears throat> why do people no longer feel safe? What is going on within the process? And that, and that goes back to his position as, as a deputy SARC. What is going on as regard, in regards to advocating for these people, protecting them from re-victimization, secondary victimization, reprisal? Right. Because the truth is, if you and I have both been sexually assaulted and you go forward and I see them bury you, I'm not telling anybody. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's about leadership. That's about the program. The number of incidents is about culture. Good Why point. is it okay? That's a good point. Mm -hmm. None of us could imagine getting, getting in our cars and driving from here to Dallas without wearing a seatbelt. Why would we not do that? Because we just don't do that. I mean, it's almost stupid for you to ask. Mm -hmm. why, why would I drive there? But then you say, why would anyone sexually assault someone else? And you see that sexual assault is still part of the culture. And so if it's a part of the culture, then we need to realize these individual SAPR programs aren't enough. There needs to be a culture shift. And the truth is, we're afraid to do that. We're afraid to do that because we're going to step on toes. We're going to hurt too many feelings. And, and I'll say this. I believe that the culture, first of all, leaders set the culture. And so if I have a new leader come on and the number of incidents 
goes up. And, and I'm not talking about random, right? If it goes up 1%, what, what caused the 1% increase? We don't know. If it goes up 15%, I'm firing the new leader. I'm firing people. Whether it's your fault or not, right. it's, it's, you're the boss. <clears throat> leader set the culture. So you're getting fired. And we don't have enough of that. We're so focused on helping the, the airmen who have been victimized, as we should be, but we use it as an excuse for not having enough resources for real proactive prevention, which is culture change, not messaging, not special months. Right. Culture change. Now, having written I'm getting a little excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you're obviously very passionate about what you do. It comes across on the stage and, and of course, what you're talking about. But having written the book, literally, on Sapper program and what we're doing now. I mean, have you seen this have a positive effect over the years? I know it's it's you know it's certainly the the DoD as a whole. I think is is really trying to push the effort to to make sure that this gets better. It's it's it certainly had a it certainly had a positive effect, and, and that's an easy question because the simple the fact of the matter is previously. Victims didn't get help, they didn't have advocates, and now they do. So that alone right. makes it positive. That alone makes it worth it, right? And so it's not, I'm not trying to say it's a bad program. I'm trying to say that the program doesn't get the attention and the resources it needs to be able to focus equally on victim advocacy and prevention. Mm -hmm. And we keep trying to, to put them together instead of recognizing that the culture, the, the culture drives the sexual assault. We don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit that. And then what happens, we see a case like Vanessa Guillen and we're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. And people who are active duty say, what do you mean you can't believe that happened? That's what we do here. Hmm. Everybody has friends that have been harassed or sexually assaulted or touched and told it was just a joke. And so that's the culture. When has drinking and driving ever just been a joke, right? You get, you get pulled over and you're drunk, you're like, it was just a joke. <laughs> no, you're gonna be held accountable. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to things like this, we're so afraid to really hold people accountable. Um, it's, had a, it's been very positive, had a, it's had a great effect, but we can do more. The great effect, when I say, I mean, honestly, it has been great the fact that, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'll say minimum hundreds of people are getting the help that they need every year. Right. So let's not deny the greatness of sure. that. But when you look at the number of incidents, how has that number changed? What's our trend analysis over the last decade? And if it's not changing, when is someone gonna get fired? Right. Think of your favorite, your favorite baseball team. Can they honestly win only 40 games every year for 10 years and no one get fired? Yeah. So. Well, the, the, go ahead, sir. Yeah, um, you know, <clears throat> Dr. Gaines makes a great point that uh, for the longest time, so much emphasis was put on the response efforts, yeah. right? And it's, how can, it was needed. Right. How can we get these people who have been victimized the care and support they need? Um, and that pillar of the SAPA program is very strong. But the um, proactive prevention efforts, right? How are we preventing sexual assaults from ever occurring? Um, you know, a lot of the efforts are still being put on, you know, don't put yourself in a situation to get sexually assaulted yes. versus, yep. you know, hey, why are 
certain demographics uh, more prone to commit a sexual assault and how can we get to the root of that problem. And, and, and a lot of that prevention effort, it takes a lot of work. It takes leaders being willing to set a new standard, um, not just in their units, but in you know, the Air Force as a whole. And uh, we're, we're just now seeing a lot of um, weight being put behind that. You know, the Integrated uh, Prevention Response Office, the IPRO office, right? right? Mm -hmm. That whole, you know, they're gonna be 12 people by the end of fiscal year 24. It, that is their job, is how do we prevent um, the kinds of situations where people commit acts they shouldn't? I feel like, and again, I, I bring emotional intelligence to everything, right? Self-awareness. When we talk about culture change, what needs to happen is, and you can tell this to whoever these iPro people are when they get started, it has to do with values. Mm. You have to align your values, thoughts, and actions. Mm. We have our core values, but what are your individual values? And then you get to a point where you say, I'm not going to do that because it does not align with my values. So you have to elevate your self-awareness, elevate how you feel about yourself and the people around you. So then what happens is not that I don't like it when you do that. It's not that sexual assault is bad. It's that it doesn't even make sense in our culture. We just don't do that. So what are the values that we can tie to that so that we are just not those kinds of people? And when we say things like, oh, it takes a long time, so on and so on, and I say, how long did it take for us to, to stamp out drinking and driving? We started taking stripes. How long did it take for when the military, in the mid 80s is when the military decided you will get kicked out for smoking weed as opposed to getting an Article 15 or something like that. So how long, how long did it take? There was some accountability there. And so accountability is tied to your honor, is tied to your integrity. So when we tie those values to sexual assault prevention, then we're gonna see the real change. Right. When people say that I value these things and it doesn't align with, and we see it all the time. We see it all the time. Why don't you eat meat because I'm a vegan? That's the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. They don't start to explain the data, the statistics, talk about the progress. I'm a vegan, I don't eat meat, okay. Why don't you think that's funny? Why do you, why do you have a problem with me doing that hurt? Because I'm an airman, that's why. That's the whole conversation. <clears throat> There's a certain professionalism and decorum that comes with, <clears throat> with what we do and Absolutely. what we represent for this country. Um, and, you know, it's good that, that we're out here talking about it. And I, I wanted to get to that point. You brought up a good point about empathetic leadership. Um, and I thought mm -hmm. that that was, it was excellent because it was well before uh, maybe empathetic leadership maybe wasn't so prevalent back in the 80s and, you know, it was a, it was definitely a, a different type of mindset and maybe, you know, some would say it was a little more hardcore. I don't know. It's not for me to say or, or not say, but in your opinion, what is the difference between a leader and an empathetic leader? Connection. In a word, connection. An empathetic leader creates connection. Um, an empathetic culture is one in which people are more engaged, they're more committed, they're happier to be here. And I'm not gonna blow you away with this when I tell you that <clears throat> happier people are better at their jobs. Right. I mean, so being an empathetic leader isn't about being soft or weak. Being an empathetic leader is being a leader who gets the most out of his people or her people, right? Getting the most by connecting with them. 
our values are aligned. We care about the same things. We both care about children. So when you say that you need to leave early because your kid is sick and I say, oh, I understand, please do. Are you gonna be appreciative and maybe work harder when you come back the next day? Are you going to extend that same courtesy to a junior ranking member below you? That's, that's empathy, that's connection. That is regardless of the mission. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it is possible to, be, to have empathy and, <clears throat> and lead military organizations. Right. Um, and to change the culture, you know, the mindset. Uh, our boss, Colonel Seaburn, is very big on, on mind shift and, and mindset and mind mindset drives this type of thing and so I think they all kind of really combine together and he's but, but when a lot of people talk about mindset this is what they're missing and this, this is what really bothers me and why I really have to dig deep into the emotional intelligence we, we talk about a mindset shift mm -hmm. you need to go from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset you need to be flexible you need to be vulnerable how many of the people that you say that to wish they didn't wake up this morning that's the piece we're missing. How many of those people say, I would have a growth mindset if I wasn't so stupid? Mm. See, we're, we're, we're trying to put this out there for everyone. We're all, we're all gonna run faster. And someone is sitting there with bone density issues in their foot. So now they're made to feel like they don't belong mm. because they can't run faster. We're not hitting everyone. Right. And an empathetic leader can take that theme of mindset shift and repurpose that so that those individuals who hate their life begin to love their life and then mm -hmm. they can begin to embrace this new message. But when I tell you, when I tell you that you should get better quality sleep so you can do better at your job and you think to yourself, I wish I was dead, how hard are you gonna try to sleep better? Mm -hmm. You're not. Right. We're missing those people and we fail to recognize how many of them are out there and we fail to recognize who they are. But the commander's not going to get a list of names. The empathetic leader knows mm -hmm. which of his people are suffering. Yeah. That's the connection piece. Well, that goes further down into, you know, further down into squadrons and, and unit right. level that, that that's really very important that this type of message hits them and they get the training and understanding of right. how to put that to use. Mm -hmm. You're exactly yeah. right. And, and I'll say this. When I, when I hear a young airman say the commander doesn't care about us, the young airman never sees the commander. So why does that young airman think the commander doesn't care? Because of what's presented to that young airman by the CGOs and the NCOs. Mm -hmm. Probably heard a captain or a tech sergeant say they don't care about us. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what we need to pay attention to. Why is that being said? What is going on? And empathetic leaders, they're not fact finders. But empathetic leaders let you know, I'm available. If you feel that way, I'm available for you to talk to me because I care about you. You're not required to talk to me, but if you want to talk, I'm available. How do you train an empathetic leader? Let's just say the captain is just staunch <clears throat> and hardcore and you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't have an empathetic bone in his body. How do, how do you make that happen? What's that process like? The process, difficult? the process starts with, it's difficult if he says it is. Right. It's okay. easy if he says it is. Fair point. The process starts with his values. Mm -hmm. What are your values? Maybe you value your people working themselves to the bone. And the reason why is because you get these results. So then I'll say, so is your value how hard they work or the results they get? 
And if it's the results they get, is there a way that we can get those results without working them so hard? Mm. Or if it's working them so hard, why is that a value of yours? Maybe we need to talk about your childhood. Maybe we need to talk about your first supervisor. So we really need to dig into who you are. And that's why we can't just skip to being an empathetic leader. Mm -hmm. How are you gonna be an empathetic leader when you hate yourself? Right. When I, I, I mean, I think that's a good point. It's not long ago, I heard something somewhere, and I don't know how true this is, and I, I can't remember where I heard it, but the average person has about 46,000 negative thoughts in a day. Uh, and that, if that's really a true statement, I mean, that is, that's, you're just constantly being bombarded right. with, with this. Yeah. Or the, the, the statistic you said this in this morning session was um, every, most people, I think it was 45% of people receive four significant traumatic events before they right. join the military, right? right. Yeah, it's 45% it's of the people in the military had four or more adverse childhood experiences before joining. Mm -hmm. And four is a magic number because, and we don't know why, but if you've had four ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, you're more susceptible to developing complex PTSD when you experience another trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and so what can we do? Like, how do we identify those people? They don't even know. Um, in my, my doctoral research, a lot of people said that they don't realize it. It's normal. Everyone in my family got beat like that. Mm -hmm. Everyone in my neighborhood dealt with that. When you look at the ACE questionnaire, it doesn't talk about resources and poverty, right? And so we just lived a life where we, did, where we were food insecure. Right. And so some people join the military because they know they're going to get fed. Hmm. And then when you think about those 46,000 negative thoughts, you know, 46,000, 10,000, 100,000, whatever it is, how many of those are actually the same recurring thought over and over and over again? Right. And it's a very simple thought. This sucks. My life sucks. I suck. Mm -hmm. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? Nobody cares. Right. So that's a recurring thing. Well, I also found it interesting this morning that you had, you had asked the question, how many people in the room had been made to feel, I guess, I think you said less than or... Or worthless. Or worthless something. before the age of 10. Right. You know, and there were a lot of hands that went up in the session that I said. And, and uh, I thought, well, that's a, you know, this is a, something that, that coming into the military and getting worked through, you know, the, the people are getting hit. And just like you said, all the way back to childhood, you know, you have right. to suffer these four, these four aces before they ever join the military. So, right. yeah. Or I, I was going to touch on very quickly, I love this morning with the empathetic leadership. You talked about the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? And um, I love that you were, you know, as a leader, you do not have to go through sexual assault to be empathetic, right? Like you can, what, what's really the, the emotions that that person might be feeling, whether it's fear, shame, guilt, anger, confusion. Well, you probably felt all of those things in your lifetime and, and how can you still reach that person um, and try and deal with the, the most pressing emotion right now, right? Um, I really, yeah, I thought that was a, a great way of making that connection because it, it's, it's something that, you know, even if somebody has experienced sexual assault, they may not want to 
connect in that way because right. they're, they're suppressing that themselves. Right. But one thing about empathetic leadership that we have to understand is that leaders are responsible for taking, or they're responsible for making sure that people are taken care of, which is different than taking care of the people themselves. I want to make sure that you get help. I don't have to be the one helping you. Mm. And that's the difference. I, I taught that one time and I had a squadron commander ask me, what happens if they don't open up and don't want to talk? How do I get them to talk? And I said, sir, that's not your goal. Your goal is for them to be helped. Your goal is for them to be connected. Um, and I'll give you an example. One time I was dealing with an airman and he was having a hard, difficult time and he broke down, tears the whole nine. And it was horrible because he reached these, this point during a tornado drill. So we were sitting in the hallway with our backs up against the wall and he's bawling and we go back to the office and I pull aside his best friend. And I gave him 20 bucks and I said, hey, take him to lunch. And all I want you to do is to see if you can get him to feel better before you guys come back to the office. And if you take too long, then don't come back to the office. And he was like, yes, sir, I got it. That was it. I didn't need to interrogate him to figure everything out. Mm. I just wanted him to be taken care of. Right. And they appreciated that I did that. Yeah. When, it's a good point. And, and you talked about replacing misery with happiness this morning, which kind yeah. of, I mean, all this ties in into the theme of what you're talking about today. Um, how is this distinct, the replacing misery with happiness from just having a positive attitude? If you're miserable, you can't have a positive attitude. You can fake it. Right. I can say I love my life when I hate my life. You can also have a positive perspective about external things. I can be miserable, but I'm excited that my favorite sports team won. As a parent, I can be excited about how my kids are doing in school or sports. So I'm, I have a positive attitude about those things, but I'm still miserable. Right. And so I have to replace the misery with happiness, and not happiness not as an emotion in this moment, but happiness as a state of being. Are you a happy person? Are you a happy person who experiences some bad times? or you're a miserable person who sometimes experiences happiness. Because the truth is, even depressed people feel happy sometimes, but they never feel truly alive. Right. And what a, what a place to be in. That, that can just be consuming and overwhelming, I would imagine. Um, so how can we equip people with not just being resilient, but genuinely shift their perspectives from misery to happiness? Like you asked this morning, or you said, everybody has the right or deserves to be happy. Right. Um, so for most people, it's, it's the first couple steps. If you don't believe you deserve to be happy, are you going to do anything about it? If you say, how can I get a bigger chest? And I say, uh, go to the gym, lift weights. And you don't believe that'll work for you? Why are you going to go to the gym? Right. Like for what? Oh yeah, it works for everyone else, but it doesn't work for me. So you have to modify your belief. And for a lot of people, it has to happen to have a massive attitude shift, a massive change in your perspective. It takes massive action. So we have to be able to find a way to connect with people sometimes to get them to do things even if, even if they don't believe in it. You hate your life. You hate being around people. You hate this, you hate this, you hate this. But you're coming with me anyway. And you can't say that to someone else you have a real relationship with them where they trust you sometimes more than they trust themselves. And then what happens is they go do this thing and they had fun. 
they had fun and they liked it. They cultivated positive emotions. And what did I say during the training, right? Um, more often you feel positive emotions, the happier you'll be. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's really hard to get that first one. Mm -hmm. And you get that first one and you don't think you deserved it. So then is there going to be a second one? It's a process. People have to understand it's a process. It takes work. Elevating your happiness takes work. It's a process, but you're worth the work. And as I said before, if you don't believe me, go ask someone who loves you. Hmm. Go ask someone that loves you. When you lose someone to suicide, you think, why, why didn't I know? Why didn't I do something? And in reality, you probably did the best you could. You didn't know, and that person did not believe that they deserve to be happy. So first start with the belief, and then take action. Really take action even if you don't believe. Um, because you have to do what I talked about earlier, PERMA. Cultivate positive emotions, engage your strengths, enhance your relationships, do things that have meaning and value to you, and get a sense of accomplishment. The more often you do that, the happier you'll be. The most efficient way to do that is to do something you love with people you love that right. means something to you, makes you feel good. Awesome, great points. That could be mini golf with your kids. We don't have to go build a house for the poor. <laughs> right, yeah, it could be a lot of things. I mean, it shouldn't yeah. be. No judgment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, none at all. Absolutely. Um, and you did talk about burnout. Um, as we're going to try to wrap up here. I know you are you got to get hit the road and probably very tired of talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think is the most concerning narrative when it comes to burnout? In the Air Force, the most concerning narrative is admitting that you have burnout does not align with your warrior ethos. Mm -hmm. If I have to choose one, the strong airman chooses their warrior. Right. They don't choose to heal. They don't choose to get help. And the truth is that we can have a sense of pride when we endure the bad times. And so we get comfortable in there. People always say, get out of your comfort zone, right? right. The truth is most people's comfort zone sucks and they're miserable in it, but they can control the suck. They know they're familiar with the misery they're not gonna be surprised by it. And so when they're burnt down and they're dealing with that, they can just press on like the, like the Airman Creed says I should, and right. my warrior ethos and my esprit de corps and aim high and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so what, what really needs to happen is people need to understand, and th again, this is a cultural thing set by leadership. It's okay, first of all, it's okay to say, I'm burnt out, I need a break. Leaders, need to have permission and audacity and boldness to say, go take the day off, go home. I did that during an exercise once and I almost got in trouble for it. My guys were working 14 hour shifts and I found out, so I was new to the unit. So after the exercise started, he's working 14 hour shifts. I found out that he had a medical, um, I don't know what you call it, where he was not allowed to work more than four hours a day because he had a, a traumatic brain injury. Mm. Like, why are you here? Go home. And he said, if I go home and I don't do this, we're gonna fail at this. I said, we can fail at the exercise, I do not care. What happens if we fail the exercise? Oh, we do another one? Right. Like, I don't did, care. Did People are scared to do that. Did you struggle with that in your time in the Air Force? Struggle kind of discerning the, or that, that constant, maybe that, that sandpaper shift on each other from the warrior ethos mindset to admitting burnout? Like, was that something that you had ever experienced in your time in the Air Force? I, I did not experience that, um, partly because 
I don't think I even heard of Warrior Ethos till I've been in about 18 <laughs> years, right? I, there was no Warrior Ethos in 1994. Right. Um, I, I didn't struggle with that at all because I never had a problem speaking up for myself. And I have a lot of bad EPRs to prove that. <laughs> so you, you, I had to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would speak up for myself and I'd say, this isn't right or this is wrong or I, like, I don't like this, I'm not going to do it. And they said, okay, or well, here's your LOC, here's your LOR, here's this paperwork. No, you're not eligible to test for tech this year. Sorry, you're not testing because you're on this control roster. And I cussed a lot of people out. And so, no, I didn't deal with that. But then the way my career ended was me not putting up with toxic leadership. And I wrote a rebuttal to that letter of reprimand that was four pages long. It resulted in multiple investigations. And that lieutenant was not allowed to stay in the Air Force because of the investigation that was initiated after I made my rebuttal to the LOR. But here's the thing, I think people need to understand, I, what I say is I make decisions, I don't make sacrifices. I didn't sacrifice my career for the right thing, I chose for her to be held accountable. Mm, right. And so you have to take that bold approach, and the reason you have to take the bold approach is because you don't realize it, you're literally saving lives. Someone can be miserable here, and what happens? They look happy when they PCS. They die by suicide six months later at their next base. Well, maybe because they were miserable here for three years, right? And so we don't realize that they're on the precipice. So what do we need to do? Teach people how to elevate their happiness. Right, great point. And, and I think that's a great point to, to wrap up, sir. I know, <laughs> I know you are definitely ready to stop talking, but before we do get out of here, um, Captain, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about what the base has in store. Yeah, for, absolutely. For month. So uh, obviously we were excited. Today was, was a great opportunity. Three sessions by the amazing Dr. Gaines. Um, I learned a lot. I know hundreds of others did as well. Um, on April 14th, uh, we have our annual SAPM 5K. So just, you know, take a moment to, you know, observe SAPM, acknowledge the impact it's had on so many people, um, and do it in a way that builds community, that brings people together. Uh, and then uh, the 24th through the 26th, we're gonna be displaying our Healing Through Art uh, submissions. So Healing Through Art, uh, a lot of people have found that uh, Creative means are a great way of dealing with some of this trauma. Uh, and so we have given the opportunity to people to take canvases from us, put those up. We're gonna put those up at the BX uh, and you can go in and check out the, the wonderful work that people have created uh, as a positive response to how this trauma has impacted their lives. Um, right, those are, those are our, our big events uh, for the rest of April, um, but we are always looking for ways to take the conversation further and, and bring the response and the prevention um, to everyone at the installation. Right, and, and I appreciate the conversation today. Obviously, a difficult conversation. Dr. Gaines, thank you for hanging out after your day was done today. I know you've got to catch a flight out of here. And uh, Captain, thanks for Absolutely. jumping in and sitting in. And uh, with that, we are gonna close out this episode of the Tinker Talks podcast. Uh, please make sure to find us on the social media. That's Facebook at Tinker Air Force Base and also on Instagram. And uh, our Twitter handle is at team underscore Tinker. And until next time, as we always say, have a great day, a great week, and treat each other with respect. See you next time.